Hey, everybody. Welcome into the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy. I'm really happy to have Ellie Honig with us today. He's going to help us unpack all the Trump legal craziness of the week. We will get to Ellie in a second. But first, thank you for tuning in. We appreciate you listening, and we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com and or post on our social media, and we'll read some feedback next time. And if you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe and rate and review, and you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. So here's some feedback we received this week on our conversation with Adrian Elrod. Kat Murkowski writes, Adrian is the best of the best. Teresa Fantasia said, I'm hearing you talk about how Trump isn't going to win, which I obviously hope is true, but you're talking about the election as if it's a normal election. I never hear anyone talking about the fact that he's doing his best to cheat. Make me feel better, please. All right, Taffy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to go with what she's saying. I'm going to make you feel better. Trump will not be elected president. (laughs) Guaranteed. Take it to the bank. Period. End of story. On our conversation with original SNL writer Alan Zweibel, Leslie J. writes, What a wonderful conversation. Great memories. I was laughing and then trying not to cry when you talk about Adrian and Gilda. Such a nice respite from the SCOTUS despair. All right, let's get to our two big things. The first being 2024 election. Now we'll throw Trump in the mix because he's part of that. So the big thing that happened this week was the Supreme Court agreed to take the presidential immunity case And that's caused a lot of consternation, frustration, anger. But we're going to go through this with Ellie Honig shortly. Um, We had the primaries in Michigan on Tuesday. No surprise, Joe Biden won, Donald Trump won. Nikki Haley, less of a strong performance than she did uh, in the prior uh, contests. Dean Phillips didn't fare very well. It'll be interesting to see what happens with him and his campaign. Although now I see there's talk of him becoming vice president under a uh, no labels, no labels party ticket with Nikki Haley at the top of that ticket. Trump, as always, gave a very coherent, gracious victory speech. Let's go to that. These lights are so bright in my eyes that I can't see too many people out there, but uh, I can only see the black ones. I can't see any white ones. You see, that's how far I've come. That's how far I've come. I got indicted for nothing, for something that is nothing. They were doing it because it's election interference. And then I got indicted a second time and a third time and a fourth time. And a lot of people said that that's why the black people like me, because they have been hurt so badly and discriminated against. And they actually viewed me as I'm being discriminated against. It's, it's been pretty amazing. I'm being indicted for you the American people. I'm being indicted for you, the black population. The mugshot, we've all seen the mugshot. And you know who embraced it more than anybody else? The black population, it's incredible. You see black people walking around with my mugshot. You know, they do shirts and they sell them for $19 a piece. It's pretty amazing. Millions, by the way, millions of these things have been sold. He, he couldn't have sounded more racist if he was David Duke at a Klan rally. I mean, you hear the laughter, like it's a studio audience at a sitcom. People laughing at the most disgusting, vile, racist comments. The part about, like, he's being indicted for 
the black people, and that black people identify with him and support him and like him because he too is a criminal, it truly is unbelievable that that guy has the level of support in this country. It really says something not so much about him anymore, but about a good chunk of our population. And then he, he said this. He happens to be a little bit uh, further left than some of the people on the stage. But I always say, when I'm in trouble on the left, I call up Lindsey Graham and he straightens it out so fast. And I'll tell you, no, 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 remember, remember. What? I love him. He's a good man. Come up here, Lindsay. Come up here, Lindsay. Come here. Okay, are you ready? The most important thing about MAGA that you need to understand is that they laughed and cheered at the disgusting racist shit, and they boo Lindsey Graham. They boo the guy who literally has subjugated himself. Like, what else could Lindsey Graham do right now for Donald Trump? Can I, and he's still booed. Can I just, can I just interject? Sure. I, I just need to be silly, because this is Go. all so <laughs> depressing and exhausting. Do you think that Donald Trump chose his words carefully when he talked about straightening it out? And Lindsey Graham. I was wondering that myself, Jim. I don't know. That's the only thing I have to add today. (laughs) Lindsey Graham, what happened to you, man? He's now backing off of his support of Ukraine also recently. I'm really not going to criticize anyone, even MAGA, for booing Lindsey Graham. So I'm okay with that. It's not the the booing. It's the the prioritization of the booing. Okay, I totally get it. But... I'm just okay with anyone booing him. You can't laugh and cheer racism and and boo Lindsey Graham, no matter how disgusting and despicable he is. Everything is just upside down. Yeah. But I do see a light at the end of the tunnel. Call me crazy. But the window is closing. March 25th, Donald Trump is going to be sitting in a courtroom facing criminal charges. And he's going to be convicted. Yeah, but... Because his name and his signature are on all the financial documents, it's cut and dry. Probably by the end of April, he will be a, a convicted felon. And that is the start of the dominoes to me. I mean, he's a convicted rapist now, a sex offender of some type or another. You know, that particular case, although I'm totally in favor of it, isn't going to put him in jail. It's not a, it's not a case well, that would do that. Well, there's, there's a lot of disagreement, Maddie, on that. Amongst the experts, there are people who have said, yeah, it's the least important. This isn't nothing burger. Uh, I think the Jack Smith case is federal election interference, and this is state election interference. And that's really significant and important. It's not just paying off a porn star. It was all of that, the catch and kill, all of it was designed to impact the United States presidential election. So I, I personally think it's a very important case. And I think, again, he's going to get convicted. March 25th is also the day he has to come up with $450 million. Uh, the other day, he was like, I'll give you 100 <laughs> Like, Like, what is this, a fucking negotiation? I that's, mean, and that's before the Gene Carroll money. And that's without interest. The $83 billion? Like, million, billion, yeah. million, million. What is this, the farmer's market? Like, what are you, handling over squash? Like, <laughs> no. You, the judge was like, you owe me $460 million or whatever, and that's what you got to pay. And so... The dominoes, they're falling, and there's an election in November, which I, again, believe 
he's going to lose. So in these next eight months, there's going to be the fall of Donald Trump once and for all. But he's going to go out like a fucking lion. It is going to be loud. It is going to be ugly. And it could be violent. And it's going to be historic. But the window is closing. We will be done with him in nine months. I hope so. Uh, You know, I do agree that Letitia James is going to do the most damage to Trump in the foreseeable future. Because he's going to have to literally start selling buildings at a fire sale which is kind of yeah, incredible. Yeah, interest rates are 7 or 8%. And let's not discount the Jack Smith case. Let's not discount Georgia. There's the documents case in Florida. He's being account- held accountable everywhere. The problem is, is that he has always, his whole life, fought a war of delay. Mm-hmm. He's very good at it. Unfortunately, in our country, not just with Donald Trump, the, the ju- just judicial system is designed for delay. That's what people do. When they don't have a case, they delay. He knows he's not going to win that case. But in his mind, winning partially is delaying either right up against the election or after the election. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, and and last night we had dual filings by Smith and Trump's attorneys, and surprisingly, this is in the Cannon case in Mm -hmm. Florida, Trump's attorneys proposed August 12th as a trial date, which is right. kind of amazing. But mm-hmm. probably they see this as delaying Chutkin's case because it would actually conflict if the Supreme Court ruling comes down against Trump. Mm-hmm. The court case then can be conflicting. So, yeah, it looks like the Florida case will probably come first. Yeah. And look, we all know that Trump and his team didn't do that because they're altruistically trying <laughs> no. to you know, get this shit done, you know in a timely manner. It was clever. obviously a calculated move on some regard, but it's also the least risky to them. Mm-hmm. You know, in Florida, they have a warm judge. They also have a warm jury pool. And... Uh, they think they can win that case, I think, number one. And they also have a judge which could delay things endlessly. So yeah. Well, this another was... strategic thing they did this week was to file a motion to dismiss that case yeah. on the grounds of presidential immunity, which was... Could tie it up. Pretty sharp because what they're doing is hoping that if they can if they can leech it to immunity and the Supreme Court is seemingly delaying now for months the issue of immunity, then will that mean that the Florida case has to wait for the Supreme Court to decide on immunity? But there's a finite window here that we're looking at legally and politically. And if, as I do, you believe that the law is coming down hard and fast on him and that in November he is not going to win, we're going to get rid of this guy. If he loses in November, I agree. If he doesn't lose, then these delays are going to pay off handsomely for him. The other big thing is the border, which is another reason to be furious. So Donald Trump and Joe Biden went to the border. Joe Biden spoke about the crisis invited Trump to work with him, which I think was a brilliant move. And I think the narrative has shifted. This could now be an issue, just like Tom Suozzi out on Long Island did. Democrats should own immigration. We should talk about this nonstop. We should say we, as a party, have put a bill forward that the Republicans have 
rejected. Our president has been down to the border. He's extended his hand to Donald Trump to try to work in a bipartisan fashion to get Congress to pass a border bill and not be afraid of this issue. We should own this issue because we're the ones trying to get this shit fixed, right? I think that works with independents and, of course, Democrats. But, you know, his base loves to be angry and to other people. And every time an immigrant does any crime, it's the biggest story on Fox News, OAN. And they milk it for everything they can get. Look, it's the independence we want. Mm -hmm. We don't care about his base anymore. They're in a cult. You know, we also saw a contrast down at the border yesterday. You saw President Biden being presidential. Mm -hmm. And you see Donald Trump being a fucking 12-year-old. He's like, yeah, the problem with immigration in California. What's his name, Governor? New scum. He literally called Newsom new scum. He only talks to his base, and they love it. Great. As much as it angers me, I say keep doing it. Keep doing it, because the suburban moms, when they hear that, the independents, the moderate Republicans, the people he really needs. So the more he talks like that, the further he gets away from the goal of expanding uh, uh, his, his base so that he can win this time. That's why, to me, the math doesn't work, and that's why I keep saying, you know, he's just not going to win. Uh, honorable mention, Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden did the ultimate mic drop yesterday. He was like, what are you guys talking to me? Why don't you talk to Jared Kushner, who actually walked away with $2 billion from the Saudi government. He goes, I'm here because I had some business dealings with non-government officials. But he solved the Middle East. It's all better now, I thought. Talk about mic drop. <laughs> Done. This fucker walked away with $2 billion. They, and, should, and, they and, should play that up more. That's a good point. Well, but Hunter Biden just was like, okay, does anybody else care about that? And a few Republicans actually were like, they nodded in, in, in the chamber. Um, their major source of information and intel, this Russian guy Smirnov, turned out to be uh, a liar, but also literally working for Putin in his disinformation campaign. And, you know, what's going to go down in history is that people like James Comer and Jim Jordan, they're not just partisan at this point, and they're not just an embarrassment. They are literally working for Putin. They're traitors. They are traitors. Say what it is. Yeah, they're traitors. They are working for our enemy in service to Donald Trump so that he could be elected president. Well, because he works for Putin as well. Yes. Yes. I mean, I remember the first time I watched The Manchurian Candidate years ago, <laughs> yeah. and I was like, oh my God, this can never happen. This can- <laughs> Whoa, what a mysteriously suspenseful film with intrigue and blah, 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 but thank God this can ne- We are living, we actually, it's that film on steroids. Because if you remember, The Manchurian Candidate didn't have a, a, a complicit Congress. All right, let's get to our winners and losers. The winner of the year is Ruth Gotsman, a longtime professor at Albert Einstein of Medicine, by donating $1 billion to provide free tuition to all med students moving forward. My loser, the Supreme Court, by taking up Trump's immunity claim, has bolstered his delay strategy. Completely agree on the winner. She is really showing what billionaires could do, and she only had a billion. We have plenty of billionaires with much more than that who could be doing good things. 
My loser is also SCOTUS. The 6-3 supermajority is proving to be as awful as we could imagine. And lastly, how in the world could four of them want to take this case? My winner, Alexei Navalny, who even in death continues to haunt Vladimir Putin, as evidenced by the thousands who showed up his, at his funeral, many chanting, no to war and Russia will be free because you can't kill the opposition. My loser, the Supreme Court, for playing with fire. Which segues into the rant this week. I am so disgusted with the United States Supreme Court. If this was a marriage, I probably started thinking about getting a divorce in 2000 after Bush v. Gore. But I'm an eternal optimist, and I'm forgiving. I'm also loyal. I don't like quitting. I'm not a quitter. So for 25 years, I remained a believer in the overall integrity of our highest court. And I've always believed that no matter how conservative they'd become, no matter how draconian their right-wing extremist rulings would be, we could always count on them in the end to at least protect and defend the Constitution, the rule of law, and our very democracy. But then in 2010, Citizens United came along, turning campaign finance on its head, enabling the wealthy, corporations, and other outside groups to spend unlimited funds on elections. The consequences of this dark money have been devastating on our democracy and the war on political corruption. In attacking election integrity directly, the court, in its 2013 Shelby v. Holder ruling, gutted the most powerful provisions of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, essentially saying, we didn't need these protections anymore because voter disenfranchisement had all but vanished. Well, this argument was as ridiculous as saying in the middle of a heavy rain that you don't need your umbrella anymore because you're dry. Yet, just as I was about to call Jacoby and Myers to file for that divorce, the court in June of 2015 issued its landmark 5-4 to four ruling in Obergefell versus Hodges, which legalized same-sex marriage. The court's liberal justices were joined by iconic swing vote Justice Anthony Kennedy. It restored some of my faith in the venerable judicial institution, but I was duped. But wait, there's more. The 2022 Dobbs ruling, which overturned Roe v. Wade and 50 years of settled law, was the last straw. It was like walking in on your husband banging the babysitter. And in the two years since, the John Roberts court has become a cesspool of unethical behavior, a total embarrassment, a fucking joke, highlighted by the massive indiscretions of Justice Clarence Thomas, who clearly never met a pay-for-play handout he didn't love, and whose wife Ginny apparently never met an insurrection she didn't love. And finally, we witnessed this week the court handing Donald Trump a huge victory in A, deciding to hear the government's coup case, and B, insisting that it needs almost two months to prepare for its first hearing. If he succeeds in delaying this trial until after the election, or it starts too late to have a verdict by then, it will have handed him a de facto immunity ruling. So the burning question is, is the United States Supreme Court, with its three Trump appointees, in his corrupt, treasonous pocket? Will it subvert our 240-year-old democracy in favor of a Trump autocracy? Well, I don't believe it will, which, by the way, would serve to undermine its own authority. I'm no longer 100% confident that the highest court in the land knows right from wrong. Or, if it does, whether it even cares anymore. And so, as a result, our overall freedom is at grave risk.
All right, let's get to Ellie Honig and talk about this week's craziness. He is an attorney and CNN senior legal analyst and the best-selling author of Hatchet Man and last year's Untouchable, How Powerful People Get Away With It. He's a former assistant United States attorney for the Southern District of New York and also hosts podcasts and writes for Cafe and Vox Media. Ellie, welcome into the back room. Thank you for having me, Andy. So I want to start off with the Supreme Court immunity ruling, and I want to frame it as the good, the bad, and the ugly. So why don't you start with the good? Give us the best case scenario. The best case scenario from Jack Smith's perspective, Mm -hmm. you're saying. The best case scenario, well, so the first thing you have to do, do if you're Jack Smith is decide which of my two cases, which of my two babies do I love more? The D.C. January 6th case or the Florida classified documents case, because there is no way they both get tried now. And to me, the more important one, if I'm Jack Smith, and I think most people, the one that's more important for the American public is obviously the January 6th one. Classified documents important, but January 6th is the heart of our democracy. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is, from Jack Smith's perspective, you're not going to get them both in. And it now seems that Jack Smith has all but cut bait on the, re- the, the realistic possibility of trying the January 6th case before the election, because Jack Smith just said, yesterday, and they're arguing about it today on Friday, about when the trial date on Florida is going to be, Jack Smith asked for a July trial on the Florida classified documents case. If he gets that, that means that trial is going to go July, August, and maybe into September. There is just no room to get the January 6th trial in after that, but before the election. So that move by Jack Smith tells me that he has made a calculation that I'm only going to get one of the two in, there's major questions about whether I'll get the January 6th one in now in light of the Supreme Court granting cert. So let me try to maximize my chances of getting the classified documents. And they case. can't be concurrent? They can't happen at the same time? Absolutely not. Zero percent chance. Uh, not not constitution. Well, A, there's practical problems, but B, a defendant has an absolute right to be physically present at his trial. So you can't be in two places at once. Mm-hmm. So for, for Jack Smith, the best case scenario from a timing perspective, like the court's yeah. going to hear this case sometime the week of the 22nd of April. Yeah. Uh, technically, they could turn around in two days and say, we've heard it. And uh, yeah, the, the trial technically. trial court and the appellate court did a great job and we don't see any reason to go further. Let me give you the scenario where the January 6th trial could still happen before the election. Mm-hmm. It requires a lot of things to, to go right. Number one, You'd have to get the Florida case out of the way. It would have to get moved all the way till past the election, right? Um, Number two. So the Supreme Court on the January 6th case, the immunity argument, they're going to hear oral arguments the week of April 22nd. The fastest they will realistically rule is the beginning of June. And they could hold that ruling till the end of June or July. Mm -hmm. But let's assume, again, we're doing the best case scenario for Jack Smith here. Let's say they rule June 1 and they reject the immunity argument outright. Um, Then it goes back to the district court. Typically, they have to issue a mandate, the Supreme Court, meaning like the official go ahead to the district court, the trial court to take it back over. That'll take a few weeks. But by the time it gets back to the district court, to the trial court, it would be end of June, early July. Mm -hmm. At that point, let's say it comes back to the district court on July 1st. Judge Chutkin can't just say, "Okay, everyone, welcome to court July 1st. Uh, Trial next week, July 8th, trial July 15th she still has to build in at least something around two months because when the case got put on pause, got stayed, Mm -hmm. they were two and a half, three months away from trial. Uh, It got stayed in December, trial was in March. So let's say they come back July 1, Judge Chutkin maybe can say, all right, I'm going to condense that a little bit. We're going to start trial after the uh, Republican convention, which is July 15th. We're going to start trial um, August 15th. 
And then you'd have a trial that would go the rest of August into September and probably into October. That's the best case scenario. But a million things can get in, in the way of that. For mm -hmm. example, the Supreme Court might hold the case until mid or late June or early July even. Number two, um, they there's a there's a way the Supreme Court, I think, is going to reject immunity. But there is an outcome here where the Supreme Court sends it back down to the district court and says, you have to hold a separate hearing on whether Trump was inside or outside the scope of the presidency. I mm -hmm. actually think that was a mistake by Judge Chutkin. She never did that. She just said, well, there's no such thing as blanket across the board immunity. Fine. But that's not exactly what Trump was arguing. He mm -hmm. did argue that. Mm -hmm. But he also argued, even if there's no such thing as across the board immunity, I'm still immune because this was within my scope of my job. And if you remember when Mark Meadows tried to get his case removed from federal from mm -hmm. state court in Polk County over to federal court, mm -hmm. what did the federal judge do there in federal court? He had a hearing several days. He took testimony. And he, right, Mark Meadows testified. Mm -hmm. And he said, right, based on all the hearing I just did, I find it's out of the scope. Mm -hmm. So it's possible the Supreme Court says, hey, you got to do the same thing with Trump. If that happens, forget it. That resets the whole that's going to take forever and that'll get appealed again. So that that, that will completely and any chance of trying this case before the election. It's possible even if the case comes down in July or August, maybe Judge Chutkin says, I'm just not comfortable. And trial dates are up to the judge. The parties can lobby and argue, but it's up to the judge. She might say, I'm not comfortable holding a trial of one of the presidential candidates that will run into October of the election year. Now, she seems pretty intent on trying this. Um, if, you if I had to gauge the passion of trying this before the election. I think at one to 10, Jack Smith said at 19 and Judge Chutkin's at like a 9.5. So mm -hmm. they're aligned. They clearly both want to get this in before the election. Um, but there's a possibility Judge Chutkin just says, look, I'm not, there's no way I'm going to have a verdict come down on October 23rd. Right. So let me right. ask you that because we were talking yeah. about this, uh, my co-producer before Maddie and I were talking about this. Yep. He, ha he, he asked the question of the Department of Justice protocols, yeah. all of that stuff that we've heard about over the years, like you can't indict a sitting president. But is there anything that exists to the point you just raised that says a judge shouldn't hold a Wait. trial if the verdict is going to come down too close to an election? Or is it really just in the yeah. judge's discretion at this point? So the judge can do whatever the judge wants. I think, but there's, I, I do want to, DOJ policy is a great question by your producer because there's so much confusion and I'll clear it up for you in a second. From the judge's point of view, there's no law, rule, anything saying thou shall not hold the trial near an election. But it, it is, in, in the platonic ideal, judges should not be thinking about that. There's, mm -hmm. you know, we right. want our judges to be political or non-political. Mm -hmm. We want them to be non-political. If a judge is saying, well, I think it's important that we try this case before the election, or I think it's important that we postpone this case till after the election. You're thinking then about how what you do will impact an election. That's inherently political. <laughs> right, so, right. Um, so, but let's, but it's a little more nuanced when you get to prosecutors. So there's been some conflation of different DOJ policies. There's this thing, I'm sure you've heard of Andy, the 60 day policy. I'm yep. making scare mm -hmm. quotes here, right? Mm -hmm. That is essentially an urban legend of DOJ. Um, there is a letter that has gone out every AG dating back 20 years or so, Holder and Garland and both parties that have, have issued it, Sessions, uh, Bill Barr. Um, and it's basically a two-page letter that basically says the same thing every two years, every time there's an election or a midterm. It says, we should not be taking overt investigative steps 
that might influence the election within, and it doesn't actually say a number of days. Mm -hmm. So I always heard it was 60 days in New York. You ask someone who was a, a USA in Florida, they might've heard 90. Mm -hmm. But that does not really apply to a trial date because it only applies to things that are in the prosecutor's control. So for example, if there was a New York Senate race, we would not announce an indictment of one of the candidates within 60 days. We would not search one of their homes within 60 days. But trial dates aren't, A, you don't determine when a trial starts. Again, you can lobby the judge, but it's up to the judge. And B, you don't determine when it ends either. You know, trials sometimes go right. long or short. Mm -hmm. So that one to me, I mean, you get the spirit of it. Um, but the bigger issue, the more directly relevant DOJ policy is in something called the DOJ manual, which is like the Bible for mm -hmm. DOJ. It's a, it's a book. It's public. You can Google it. And it gives you all your guidance and rules. Not all your guidance, but it gives you important guidance and rules. And there's a provision in there that says no prosecutor shall ever take any step with any intent to affect an election. It doesn't say help one side or the other or for better or worse or help a Democrat or har harm mm -hmm. a Democrat or Republican mm -hmm. or whatever. It just says you can never take a step because you have some interest in affecting an election. And the problem here is if you're Jack Smith and you are hellbound on trying it before the election, isn't that you're, you're in, the reason is because you, if you, if your view is Jack Smith, which is a perfectly commonsensical, normal view to say, well, the American public needs to know, you're admitting that you want this because it will influence the election. Maybe not in a bad way, maybe in a good way. Mm -hmm. But that I would argue in the strict platonic sense of what a prosecutor should be violates the rule. And this I would proffer is why Jack Smith utterly refuses to say, of course, look, any human being listening knows, does Jack Smith want to get this case in before the election? Of course. If the election was not this year, the election was two years out, he wouldn't be asking for expedited, expedite this. The reason he's doing it is because of the upcoming election, but he won't say it. And the reason he won't say it is because I think he's smart and experienced enough to understand that technically it would probably violate that DOJ provision that I talked about just a minute ago. And I get all that. But isn't it, yeah. it, it such an impractical part of the manual if something of this magnitude which the american people yep. really do need to know why hang on this protocol that has no in intrinsic value if it's for the good of the people and our democracy it's a good question so first of all i don't know that everyone well first of all there's an argument that jack smith should just come out and say it like what's with all this artifice about oh need for you know prompt resolution but he won't i mean part of the reason i think he lost his effort to get the Supreme Court to take this case on an emergency basis back two months ago was because you have to articulate a reason. And he couldn't he because he couldn't say the real reason, which is the election. So there is an argument that he should just say, of course, I want to try this before the election. Of course, the American public needs to know. The problem is, though, you're injecting your politics at that point. I mean, for, for all the people I'm sure listening to this, I, I, I'm, I will count myself among these people who say, I think it, it would be better for us if we knew beforehand on the January 6th case. There are also tens of millions of people who say, no, that's bullshit. We, we, there should, nobody, he should not be tried for this at all. He should not be tried for this right before the election. I think the better thing, I'm speaking for other people here, I think the more fair, better, smarter outcome is let's wait and do it afterwards. And so then how does a prosecutor or a judge make that decision based on which side of the aisle they're on, based on what outcome they mm -hmm. want? That's where it gets fraught. Well, these are all points you raised in your New York Magazine piece yeah. this week. And yeah. and I agree with much of what you said because it does get complicated 
when the issue of politics enters the conversation, because then you're right. Who's politics? But there is a more macro concern here, which is this meaningless protocol that's in a manual decades ago. And now we're talking about the United States presidency and insurrection and democracy and autocracy and things we've never prepared for. And I, I think to your point, yeah, maybe in December, Jack Smith should have said all of that somehow in a way that right. maybe didn't look political, but this is about right. the law. Or at this least is... candid, at least yeah. honest, yeah. right? I mean, he has undermined his credibility, but I mean, look, do you for one second doubt that Jack Smith is motivated by a desire? And I'm not even saying a bad desire, but like, do you have any question that Jack Smith is motivated by a desire to get this trial done before the election? I mean, that, that's that's as plain as the sky is blue, right? Yeah. But he won't admit it. And as a result, I think it harms his credibility. But, but look, I think it's perfectly fair to say, like, these are all DOJ policies. You know, are they doing any good? Are they doing more harm than good? Mm-hmm. The problem is, if, if your approach to policies is we discard them when we don't like the result, then they're not really policies. Yeah, they're but, al- but of, also comes, you can look back on, on Comey and you can look at Barr and you can look at... Well, Cases yep. where Comey's a perfect example yeah. of why the policy exists. I mean, he broke it. Um, but I mean, you know, but if he broke you did it. not like what James Comey did, and I'm sure you didn't, and I didn't either for various reasons, mm-hmm. including the fact that he just jumped the chain of command and made himself the attorney general for a, a couple days. Um, if you found a problem with James Comey making that announcement, you can see why the policy exists. Now, I, I will agree this is different because. The FBI director saying, I'm going to sit down in front of a camera when there's no act. It's 100 percent in my control and make this announcement. That is egregious. And Jack Smith is in a different position because he's subject to some things that are out of his control, such as when will the trial date be? How long will the trial last? But he does have the ability to go on the record of here's when I want the trial to be. And that's when if you're thinking about the election, you are violating, I think, that DOJ policy. But I, I think it's fair to question whether that policy makes sense anymore. Yeah. Um, as we wind down here, so in terms of the good, the bad, and the ugly, give me the absolute ugly. <laughs> uh, the ugly, I'll get, let me give you the worst case scenario for, mm-hmm. for prosecutors writ large. Okay. I'm going to mm-hmm. give, I'm going to give you the best in the worst case scenario. Mm-hmm. The best case scenario for pro- the prosecutor world is Alvin Bragg, Manhattan DA tries Donald Trump in March. I do think in, in this month, we're now in March. So that'll start in three weeks. I do think that's happening. And then you get one of the two federal cases in over the summer, either Mar-a-Lago or January 6th. If I'm prosecutors, I I would prefer January 6th, but it may be Mar-a-Lago. Okay. The ugly, the worst case scenario, I don't think there's much way that uh, the Manhattan case does not happen, but the Manhattan case could happen. If I'm Donald Trump, my best scenario now is the Manhattan case happens. Maybe I beat it. I mean, obviously the best case scenario is he beats one of these cases. I don't think that's likely, but maybe he could get a hung jury. You get one juror. But let's assume convictions here. Mm-hmm. If you're Trump, your best case scenario is you get tried in Manhattan, you get convicted, but A, nobody, no swing voter or no persuadable voter really cares. And B, you don't end up getting sentenced to prison, which is possible, but unlikely. Okay. Then your best case scenario is Judge Cannon, either today or eventually, throws the Mar-a-Lago one out till after trial. Mm-hmm. Then the Supreme Court takes long enough with the immunity case that that throws the January 6th one out till after trial. And Fonnie Willis, no matter what happens, they're not trying their case before the election. That's That one is not, nowhere near ready to go. And she's asking for an August date. That's just for show. So there's a world for Trump where he only gets tried and it's once before the election on the Manhattan case. 
So there's a lot of variability. So he basically he's basically like, pulls a, a royal flush. Yeah, I mean, it, it basically could be anything from like he avoids all the heavy cases to like he gets tried and convicted two times of two different complete sets of felonies before the election. So there's a lot that lays in the balance here. And if you were a gambling man, mm -hmm. give me what you think oh. is actually going to happen. I think here I'm gonna I'll make a wild speculative prediction because anyone who tries to predict jury outcomes is a fool. He's I predict the trial will go ahead in Manhattan as scheduled, mm -hmm. and I think he will get convicted there. Um, I think there's questions to be raised about the seriousness of the charges, but I think it, it is not entirely, but largely a paper-based case, not entirely. And I think a Manhattan jury is gonna. I know a Manhattan jury is gonna hate Donald Trump. I mean, maybe he'll get one or two sympathizers. Um, I think he either avoids both federal trials or maybe goes to trial on the Florida case. The problem there for prosecutors, you have really good facts against Donald Trump on the mm -hmm. classified documents case. But think about your jury pool. Yeah, This is Florida. Donald Trump won Florida in 2020. But even if you limit it to the southern counties where this will your jury pool will be pulled from, he got 45-ish percent in most of those counties. So you cannot avoid the fact that you're going to have three to eight Trump voters on your 12-person jury. And I can very much see a group of three, four, five, six Trump voters or even one or two of them saying not going to convict him. And mm -hmm. then you have a hung jury. Mm -hmm. And that's that's trouble. So I, I think if I had to put the over-under on the number of uh, of trials for all you betters out there for, uh, for you know, FanDuel or something, I would have it at 1.5. Mm -hmm. uh, so throw, throw your bets down. Yeah. Well, it's going to be interesting. And yeah. uh, I don't think he's going to pull a royal flush, but I think you're right. He may, he may, he may squeak out a. a he may pull somewhere. three of a kind or something. Yeah. Ellie, always a pleasure to have you in the back room. Thanks, Thanks for helping Eddie. us unpack this stuff, and uh, we'll look forward to next time. Great to talk to you. Thanks. Take, take care. This episode of the Back Room was edited and produced by me, Andy Ostroy. It was co-edited and co-produced by Maddie Rosenberg, and co-produced by Jen Hamoud. Our theme song was composed by Andrew Hollander, and our logo was designed by Cricket Langell. And special thanks to Patricia Wind. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast and also follow or subscribe. Until next time, keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards, and have a great week.